Culture Dumps. Welcome to Culture Dumps. I'm Ryan Lichten, and I'm here with Brett Berg of the Museum of Home Video. Brett. Say hello to the folks. Thanks, man, for having me on. This is a real treat. Uh, first time, uh, what, they, what do they say? Uh, long time listener, first time caller? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah exactly. My gentleman caller. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, real quick, I want to cover some stuff before we get into today's dump, which is a big, big dump. It was actually a second runner up for Halloween because it's scary but um, and evil. But. Uh, first, uh, yeah, we're on kind of a new episode release schedule. We were for a long time trying to get one out every week. Uh, I feel like we're shortchanging you with the content of the episodes in some cases. So we're doing every other week now to make sure that all the research can be completed. And we'll, of course, have special episodes in between. But thank you guys so much for supporting us, uh, especially those of you that subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash culture dumps. Um, Brett is joining me today because he is performing at our first live event on January 20th in Los Angeles at Whammy Analog Media. We announced that on our last episode, and we thought we'd have Brett over, uh, A, because you're a funny dude. You know a lot about a lot of things. You're a pop culture uh anthropologist mm -hmm. <laughs> i should say mm -hmm. so real quick what is the museum of home video oh sure uh museum of home video is a weekly well it's not just a weekly live stream it's actually an entire channel of live streamed shows all based around the theme of found footage found at museumofhomevideo.com so my show is every tuesday night 7 30 p.m pacific and it's two two and a half hours of found footage for stoners seekers archivists and drinkers and chances are if you're watching the show, you're at least one of those four. Yeah. And uh, well, I'm also on this show because I am a homosexual and Anita <laughs> Bryant makes me mad. And I'm yeah. really excited to talk about this. Yeah, yeah. We were, uh, yeah, I, I, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we, yeah. And I mean, we're going to get into this. I've been I've been putting off this one because I wanted to get it right. Um, but before we dive into the dark world of Anita Bryant, um, I was on a Museum of Home video, one of your episodes. Mm -hmm. We did a uh, the best of surreal life, which oh, was, yes, that was a <laughs> just perfect fantastic. Segment. Perfect segment. But uh, just to give you guys a, an example of the other things that that you know Brett shows on that same episode that I was on, where we talked about the top ten moments from the surreal life. You also showed this amazing clip from Boy Meets World. <laughs> where uh, one of the characters gets wrapped up in a cult. Mm -hmm. What what Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, Set the stage on that really okay. quick. Okay. Uh, on a macro level, the there was a phenomenon in the 70s and 80s on and 90s in American sitcoms, the very special episode. Yeah. The one where they suddenly ditched the laugh track for 15 straight minutes and they went straight into melodrama, whether it's about cults or murder or addiction or death, you know, some heavy ass subject. Um, one of my favorites is the facts of life where Tootie almost becomes a prostitute. Yeah. <laughs> And, not Tootie. Yeah, not Tootie. The whole second half of the episode, no laugh track, dead silent. And then when the, the, the crucial uh, finale that's real tragic happens, where Tootie makes friends in, a, in like a Manhattan uh, coffee shop with a runaway underage prostitute, and she almost <laughs> becomes one herself, and so she leaves the girl in the diner, and they just sort of like look at each other through the mirror, through the glass, yeah. and then applause like applause track comes on <laughs> executive produced by right yeah. oh my god yeah just like Perfect. see you later have fun sucking strangers dicks for money and she's just like have fun in private school bitch exactly yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a true tragic television moment you should all see it so 
I have cut together in the past, and I, I still show this, um, an entire feature-length program of very special episodes. Yeah, and, uh, it's a very special episode, what you do that. <laughs> it's exactly It's it. very meta. <laughs> yeah, and it, the show is sold on the idea that it's comedy. Like, you will get a comedy show out of these weird sitcom clips that are going serious. But the show actually is way more serious than comedy, and people really get hit in the chest with it. Yeah. Like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. Right, right. Oh, it, it reminds me of... Um, uh, different strokes when um, Arnold gets wrapped up with the the bike salesman who has like a kitty playland in his back office and mm-hmm. he wants to take some pictures. Yeah, yeah, that's well, that's in the show too. By oh, the way. oh, okay, great. Yeah, so th- there you go. That's a little little taste of what you get on the yeah. Museum of Home video from our boy Brett here. So let's get into it. Today's dump is Anita Bryant. Uh, I'm sure our younger listeners and uh, especially our you know public school only learned like the forest on you American history listeners aren't really going to know about Anita Bryant, which is why she's perfect for a dump. Um, it's, there's a lot to it. And also one of the things that I find interesting about her story and history in general is, you know, we have icons in the LGBT world, like a Harvey milk per se, or like a Marsha Johnson. We're going to talk about them a little later, but it's important to recognize the villains as well. There's just as much to learn from the bad guys as there is from from the good or the bad people as there are from the good. And uh, Anita Bryant is a perfect example of that. So why is she a dump? Well, Anita Bryant is a dump because she perfectly exemplifies a canceled celebrity. Celebrities who use their platform to push political views are nothing new, but Anita Bryant was the first to showcase an extreme political belief that caused a very public backlash, specifically her anti-LGBTQIA plus beliefs. There are other early examples of celebrities being canceled, but this is really the first time where a celebrity was canceled by progressives rather than conservatives. For instance, like when John Lennon said that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus, or even more recently, like Sinead O'Connor ripping up a picture of the Pope. By examining Anita Bryant, we will find echoes of present-day fallen stars as well as hateful legislation like Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill. Anita Bryant proved that fame is a powerful weapon that is not always used for good. Her whole background, it, it, it's a very um, worn out rhetoric. It's all biblical. You know, it's all based on the Bible, uh, specifically Leviticus 18.22, which is the passage in the Bible, which famously says or infamously says, you know, man shall not lay with man as he would with a woman. And that's been interpreted so many different ways for both sides of the argument on whether or not God hates gay people. Um, you know, most notably the Westboro Baptist Church, the, you know, they really, really harp on that. But there's plenty of gay churches that use that as an example of misinterpretation interpretation of the Bible. And that's, you know, that's where the biblical stance against homosexuals comes from. And that's the basis of Anita Bryant's whole thing. Uh, It's interesting, too, because, you know, she dedicated her entire life to striking down equal rights and stripped herself of all the accolades that she spent the first half of her life achieving. And now she just exists in this world that is probably unrecognizable to her and her peers which is good. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm, yeah. glad I'm glad you wake up every day confused. Yeah, we're living in a in a new world where some of those rules don't apply. That some of them are trying to come back. Of course, we have our current crop of QAnonni uh ultra right wing folks in Congress, for example. Right. And uh, they're pushing rhetoric, which is a carbon copy of some of this garbage we're going to. Oh, talk yeah. About. It's it's never gone away. It's always it's because when you bring religion into something, there's no argument against what you have to say. If you're using God or the Bible to back you, 
because that stuff's kind of made up. So <laughs> like, there's no way to prove you wrong if your argument is God. Uh, and, and that's kind of the, the shield that a lot of these folks hide behind. Um, I want to talk about some of our source material really quick. Not only did we go through tons of articles from major news outlets covering the anti-gay campaign that Anita went on, but also her own personal accounts of her life uh, from her autobiography or several autobiographies that she had written and the documentary films before Stonewall and after Stonewall. After Stonewall is an amazing watch um, because it kind of it comes up to the early 2000s and it's narrated by Melissa Etheridge. So that's mm. great. Also, the life and times of Harvey Milk and the one year podcast by Slate that all went into this episode. So let's get into some background. I need us some background. Well, how we're starting this. So let's yeah. do it. Our story begins with the birth of Anita Bryant on March 25th, 1940 in Barnesall, Oklahoma. Bryant was born to Lenora Berry and Warren Bryant. According to the Anita Bryant Ministries website, Anita was actually declared dead when she was born, but her grandfather, John Barry, refused to believe that, going so far as to threaten the doctor with death. It is not clear exactly how she was brought back to life, but apparently she was. And when Bryant was just an infant, her parents divorced, a rare occasion in those days, especially within the fundamental Christian community the Bryant family became deeply involved in. Uh, on Anita's website, the story of the grandpa, like grabbing a doctor by his lapels and threatening his life in order to save the life of the baby, which I guess she just started crying. There's a lot of doctors, um, being incorrect in this episode, uh-huh. which is, uh, a running theme, I guess. And, and a standard trick in biopics is like the black and white flashback at the beginning, 1940 with the uh, yeah. doctor coming in and this whole story with the grandpa is so nuts. Yeah, it, it seems very unlikely, but it is fucking tailor-made for the kind of people that would follow Anita Bryant. Um, also, her grandfather, he had gone through his own shit. He was saved after an oil refinery explosion. Again, very 1940s black and white <laughs> starting of a biopic, uh, and it left him blind. Now, after her parents divorced, her father joined the Army while her mother began work at an Air Force base. With her mother's life being consumed by work and probably being a single woman again, Anita and her siblings were sent to live with their grandparents. And it would be her grandparents, particularly her blind grandfather, that would ignite the musical spark in the then two-year-old Anita. In fact, it was her grandfather that taught her her first song, Jesus Loves Me. According to Anita, her grandfather told the local preacher that he should allow Anita to sing in church. And after hearing the young girl sing, the preacher, flabbergasted to say the least, allegedly said, for a little girl, she sure got a voice that's big. <laughs> okay, that sounds made up, and I'm sure he said something nice, but it was no way that incorrect. Like, that's not how you would say that. You would say, for a little girl, she sure got a big voice. Not for a little girl, she sure got a voice that's big. It's like, you know what I mean? It, it, it doesn't sound correct. Mm-hmm. By six years old, she was hitting the stages of local fairgrounds. She was also invited to sing on local television and radio shows. Her local fame earned her her own show on WKY-TV. KY, huh? When she was just 12 years old. Now, this was local TV, a.k.a. like public access. But back then, you know, public access now is 
buried within television. Whereas back then you really only had a couple channels anyway. So, you know, usually about three to five channels, five if you were rich. So this is just whatever the, the local station was. Um, and also, what, you yeah. know, they needed to fill airtime on all these local stations that couldn't afford to buy programming. Right. Well, at the end of the day, when they were out, they would just show like the American flag for like 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but public access is still filled with children singing religious songs to this day. <laughs> like that's, that's what it's for. Um, now, Anita says that she was saved at the age of eight after asking her mother to help her with the process. Allegedly, at age eight, she told her mother that she wanted to be saved. And when her mother asked if she really understood what that meant, the child said, it means to accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior. It means that he died on the cross for you. It means to ask him to forgive your sins. If you're eight years old and you have serious enough sins under your belt to need to be saved, (laughs) you are fucking like... Uh, I, you're like Mary Bell from England who like used to cut little boys' penises off with scissors or something like when she was six. You have to be really bad to want to be saved when you're eight years old and to have the the wherewithal to even understand what that means. Right. She's just filled with Jesus mania at this age. Yeah. Well, hey, that, that's what she was raised around. And also a lot of the stuff about her childhood, this is pulled directly from the Anita Bryant Ministries website. So you got to take everything with a grain of salt because she's going to make her story as epic as possible. She truly has you believe that it was a David and Goliath like type battle that her entire life became. Now, eventually, Bryant's mother remarried and moved the family to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where Anita attended Will Rogers High School. The now teenage Anita continued to hone her craft, landing the lead role in the senior play South Pacific when she was just a sophomore. She went on to land leading roles in the school's production of Annie Get Your Gun, Guys and Dolls, and The Sound of Music. Aside from starring in the plays, she also produced them. In addition to the local TV and radio spots and her theater work, she was invited to compete in the Arthur Godfrey Talent Show in New York, where she dominated the competition with her voice. Her performance in the talent show captured the attention of record executives, and she signed a deal with Carlton Records during her senior year of high school. Arthur Godfrey, we have to put this in context. It's a name that means absolutely nothing today. Yeah, I have no idea. Except for his, this show that this is talking about was as big as American Idol is. Okay, and and it was televised. Yeah, well, at first it was on radio, and then it was on. Okay. He had a long he had a long career in this kind of talent search arena. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's just been part of Americana forever. Like Star Search, Arthur Godfrey, American Idol. Uh, we're never gonna not want to see someone plucked out of obscurity and turned into the biggest thing ever. And then goons who fail. Yes. Yeah. Or <laughs> goons who get really famous and then uh, destroy themselves like the story today. Mm-hmm. Upon graduating high school, Anita dove into the world of beauty pageants, winning the title of Miss Tulsa when she was 18 years old. The then Miss Tulsa followed the pageant circuit all the way to Atlantic City, where on September 6th, 1958, she placed third in the Miss America pageant and she tied for Miss Congeniality. Now, a tie for Miss Congeniality. Does that create conflict? <laughs> You know, like, are there two girls nominated for being the nicest that now hate each other? Miss mm-hmm. Fisticuffs. Yeah, Miss Fisticuffs. Oh, that's great. That, I would watch that. That's something I would sign up for. Absolutely. Now, though she didn't win Miss America, Anita was still given a scholarship to Northwestern University, where in between classes, she was a regular on Don McNeil's Breakfast Club in Chicago and was also recording and releasing music. Her first big single was Till There Was You. There were bells on the 
But I never heard them ringing No, I never Till There Was You went on to sell one million copies, earning Bryant her first gold record. I like that that show that she was on was called The Breakfast Club because it reminds me of Charlemagne the God, like the hip hop fucking <laughs> show. And I'm just like picturing that. It's like, so Anita, like, what's your body count? Or like, you really got a problem with the gays, though? Like, yeah, I'm like picturing like this, like, like there's like a bottle of Hennessy on the desk, like all the stuff that they do on Charlemagne the God's Breakfast Club. That's what I want to see with Anita Bryant. Um, so she's getting famous. She's still in school. It was a lot easier to sell records back then because that was the only way you could get music unless you were listening to the radio. So that's why, because as we'll learn, she wasn't that great of a singer. I mean, <laughs> no, she was, she, she was, yeah, she was adequate. She was a singer. As you said, uh, when we were talking about this before she was a singer and you know what? I like her songs for sure. And it's actually interesting that she didn't become kind of like a camp icon. Like so many other singers of that era did like a Doris day or like, a, like, you know, Barbara Streisand, even like she has this camp, very sterile thing. That's just ripe for like drag parodies. Yes. Very starchy and stiff and proto John Watersy. Yes, yeah, absolutely. As her fame began to skyrocket, Anita started traveling on weekends at the behest of her record label, who would send her around the country to meet with radio DJs, perform, and make other media appearances. And it was during one of these radio station trips in Miami, Florida, where she met DJ Bob Green. The two fell in love and were wed in June of 1960. Green was not a Christian, but became one on their wedding night. There's got to be a joke in there. Like, I'm not a Christian, but I was on my wedding night. It's got like, there's something there. <laughs> Anita had made the decision to drop out of school to pursue showbiz full time. And she moved to Miami to be with her husband, who then became her manager. Her next release was Paper Roses. I realized the way your eyes deceived me with tender looks that I took for love so take away the flowers that you gave me and send the kind that you remind me Paper Roses became certified gold as well as her next hit, My Little Corner of the World. Now a bonafide star, Anita was asked to join Bob Hope on several holiday tours for the USO, performing several televised shows with Hope throughout the 1960s. Interestingly, Anita was asked to perform at the White House multiple times as well as at both the Republican Convention in Miami and the Chicago Democratic Convention in 1968. That's really crazy because nowadays you would never have an artist that would perform at both. Absolutely not. And not only that, she was at the infamous Chicago 1968 Democratic Convention where there were protests and riots and stuff. Well, she better get used to it. <laughs> that's going to be uh, kind of her. Uh, that's going to be the world that she's existing within. But yeah, I mean, nowadays, you know, anyone that performs at a Democratic Convention in no way is ever going to be asked to do anything Republican and vice versa, especially so. Yeah. Something I saw on Twitter very recently really blew my mind. It was comparing and contrasting the two moods at the uh, Warnock versus Walker 
campaign headquarters on election night on the uh-huh. runoff, and the the Warnock crowd is huge, and there's this bumping party track that's playing, and everyone's having a great time. Cut to the Walker convention, where it's some lone yeah. white guy <laughs> on stage with just an acoustic guitar and sparse attendance. Yeah, crowd. you know, yeah, it's funny because uh, the white guy with the acoustic guitar that like, I mean, if you think back to like Woody Guthrie and up through Bob Dylan, it started as not that. And now that's that's the only kind of act that they can get. Um, she, uh, you know, she was releasing a ton of albums during this time, all of which were certified gold. That includes here Anita Bryant in your home tonight. Uh, also, in <laughs> do my, it. Yeah. Here in your home tonight. It's like how you would advertise wrestling. Um, also, in my little corner of the world, she put out a greatest hits album and the very strangely titled The World of Lonely People. So, yeah. Her wholesome image and clean Christian lifestyle led to several endorsement deals with brands such as Coca-Cola, Kraft Foods, Tupperware, and Holiday Inn. All very down-home brands, all very much uh, suitable for Anita Bryant then. Because, again, she didn't have any controversy. She was just like, oh, she was Miss Tulsa. We love her. It's very safe. (laughs) You know, you're getting something safe from Anita Bryant. But the tides were changing in society, and that'll all catch up. None of her career accolades are really that relevant to the dump, except, uh, you know, it, it's her family life that that this the clean the clean Christian lifestyle I should say that led her down this dark path of bigotry and dumped him. Like it doesn't really <laughs> matter that she did stuff with Coca Cola or Kraft Foods or that she was a you know pageant queen. None of that stuff really applies to why I chose her as a dump, but it's worth mentioning. See. Anita was told by several doctors that she was unable to have children, news that devastated the young star. So in 1963, Anita and her husband, Bob, adopted a baby boy they named Robert Green Jr. But just a year later, Anita and Bob were shocked to learn that she was pregnant. Their next child, Gloria, was born in May of 1964. Continuing to prove how insanely wrong the doctors were, Anita gave birth to twins, Billy and Barbara, on January 3rd, 1969. And though the twins were born prematurely, they were both healthy. Now, this twins ordeal was exhausting for Bryant, who had to take a break from singing and performing in order to heal herself, not only physically, but emotionally. What a dumb doctor. What a dumb team of doctors. She's like a huge star. She could afford the best of the best. You can't have kids. Pop, pop twins pop pop like that's her vagina pumping out uh, (laughs) but uh (laughs) but yeah it's crazy but also you know yes pumping out that many kids especially twins will take its toll on your body and just emotionally she was just overwhelmed so she took a little break to become you know molly homemaker which is where this like love and of family and the idea of like the strong family unit starts filling her head and becomes a major part of her life It's no secret that America, and the rest of the world for that matter, was changing in 1969. As music tastes evolved, stars like Anita Bryant began to fall out of favor. But Anita's career found new life with an endorsement deal with the Florida Citrus Commission, which made her the face of Florida orange juice. Appearing not only in print ads, but also on televised commercials, Anita would sing the praises of the Sunshine State and its bountiful citrus offerings. Maintaining her wholesome all-American image, she was asked to sing the Battle Hymn of the Republic at the 1971 <laughs> Super Bowl and also at the graveside service for deceased President Lyndon B. Johnson in 1973. Uh, Battle Hymn of the Republic. Like, yeah, how does that go? 
for people. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Okay. Yeah, and anytime you watch any documentary that is going to mention Anita Bryant and this whole shit we're about to get into, they always start with a clip of her singing that because it's very, it's just like militant and like very like like soldier of God kind of thing. And she has this fucking pompous, like proud, self-righteous look on her face. So it's like that becomes the soundtrack for Anita Bryant. Now, she also released a series of books during this time, including her first of many autobiographies titled Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory, which became a bestseller. And all of her books are like short autobiographies uh, written in like the most boring, self-congratulatory language ever. But she also had a cookbook uh, where I, I can only imagine it's the most like the just plainest recipes and also like very carefully trying to not have food be too gay, like like hot dogs, but you got to cut them up. You know, or like, like, or those things. Like, I saw those 1970s cookbooks, like where it's like bananas with hollandaise sauce. So like, yeah, just make sure you cut them up. Though. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, this book is called "Bless This Food: The Anita Bryant Family Cookbook." Oh yeah, and it's a wash on eBay, folks. Just a hint. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, also, it reminds me because I, I did look through it a little bit. It reminds me of the cookbook that was released by Dorothea Puente, who was a serial killer in the '90s. She oh, was a very God. old woman. She was in her 70s, I believe, when she was arrested, and she had a, a boarding house where you know people like it was like a halfway house. So you're getting out of jail or you're homeless, and they and you're finally getting assisted, you know, housing assistance and things. They would put you at her place, and she would convince these people who didn't know any better to. Sign over their social security checks to her and once they kind of caught wind of it that'd be your last meal she would poison you generally with an overdose of medication she would grind into your food and then bury you in the garden she like she did that to like a couple dozen people and from prison she released a cookbook that was all the food that she would cook for her tenants uh sans poison (laughs) you have this i i do yeah yeah and the like the recipe that stands out which is something that reminds me that like Anita Bryant would make are veggie burgers. But the base of the veggie burger is oatmeal. Oh, like <laughs> it's like, it's like oatmeal with like cut up fucking veggies in it to make this like weird cliff bar textured. It like, sounds like the, 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 the maximum security prison food that they give people. Oh, where it's just like a ball. Yeah. 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 Uh, oh man. I, my dad would kill me if I, can't remember yeah it's called like a scuzz ball it's like there's a name for, oh a juke ball it's a juke ball yeah where they just grind up everything throw it together in a ball and they're like here yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's crazy so what other but on this subject what other cookbooks of the damned are there like this oh um well there's not like the dorothea puente cookbook is the only one that was actually published and like put in print but notoriously there's like arthur shawcross who is the genovese river killer um he from prison would send people recipes like i have one hanging up on my fridge right now just a print of one but it's how to make his like famous um it's like ricotta stuffed it's like stuffed shells and he also had one for like cheesecake and stuff and then Otis tool Famously of the Henry Lee Lucas, Otis Tool duo, uh, he released a barbecue sauce mm. recipe from prison because he famously said that they would eat people, which eh, there's a lot of <laughs> proof that that didn't happen. And he was just trying to, you know, make a scene. <laughs> but yeah, so the c- killers be cooking. <laughs> they, they, they definitely be cooking. Uh, and so did Anita. Now, it seemed as though she had it all worked out. Four children, a loving husband, a flourishing career and a strong relationship with God. However, unbeknownst to Anita Bryant, a rainbow-striped evil was lurking in the shadows, an evil she thought was reserved for sin havens like New York or San Francisco. This threat to her overtly Christian values and children everywhere was the gay rights movement, 
Doesn't that sound familiar? Too familiar. Doesn't that sound like something we hear like now? Yes, like today. I want it before we get into the the meat of Anita Bryant's uh, professional homophobia. <laughs> right. We need to acknowledge, especially when you see it today, um, monetized hate is grifting. No yes. matter what it is, no matter who's directing the hate, it is a grift on the part of the person doing it. And there's a whole bunch of people today who t- professionally trade on this hate. You right. know, I could go down the list, but y- you know, you know who I'm talking about. Sure. And uh, this sounds familiar because we didn't really, when we in the research for this, we didn't really see that Anita Bryant was a grifter on paper. But to my eyes, she reads this one. The second she migrates away from um, whatever she was doing in the music business. That is when she becomes professionally a hater. Right. Well, what happens, I mean, especially in Anita's case, and I, I know we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but what, what happened in my opinion is, you know, she, she doesn't, she wasn't intentionally trying to become a grifter, but once you start, you know, saying these crazy things and you have people protesting your events, you start losing record deals and you start losing endorsements. So your hate has to become your business in order to stay afloat, you know, and, and that's what we're seeing. That's why you have celebrities that fall from grace and then have this underworld fan base, like Roseanne, for instance, you say some fucked up shit and then you like, you have to perpetually stick with that because the only people that are supporting you financially agree with that stuff or believe in the same things you do and it might be a very small margin of society but that's your t- meal ticket now yeah, yeah it's grifting it's, it's taking advantage of people that don't know any better in a lot of senses you know mm-hmm. so in order to tell this story correctly we got to talk about 1969 a little bit in addition to the hippie movement, the Manson murders, the peak of the Vietnam War, the black civil rights movement, rising drug use, the galvanization of counterculture, and the feminist movement, 1969 was also the dawn of gay liberation. From June 28th to roughly July 3rd in 1969, a riot broke out in New York City's Greenwich Village after a routine, albeit entirely unjustified, police raid of a gay bar called the Stonewall Inn. The riot, as it became known, was allegedly kicked off by activist Marsha P. Johnson, although Johnson denied this before their unfortunate and mysterious death in 1992. Marsha P. Johnson has, uh, there's a lot of great stuff out there on them. Uh, Netflix put out a documentary recently. Uh, Just, you want to talk about someone that's just been on the pulse of civil rights, uh, whether it be, you know, black civil rights up through gay liberation up to AIDS activism. And then she's, you know, or they're found in a river, (laughs) you know, it's, it's a really fucked up crazy story that perfectly exemplifies the gay struggle in my opinion. Now, during the Stonewall riots, police cars were set ablaze, protesters flooded the streets and a silenced voice was finally heard loud and clear. When I say police raids, you got to understand Gay bars were illegal in just about every state. So a lot of them were backed by the mafia and funded by the mafia. And the way that they would get out of being raided was through paying off the police. They called it Gayola, uh, which was, you know, a playoff of Payola, which was a radio uh, scandal that happened in the 40s and 50s. I believe it was the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, like, for instance, there was a, a lesbian bar in Houston, Texas in the 1960s called the Roaring 60s. And anti-gay laws were so strong back then that there was cross-dressing laws where if you were a woman and you had a zipper in the front of your pants, that constituted cross-dressing and you could be arrested. And so police would go into this bar, the uh, particularly this one bar I'm talking about, the Roaring 60s, and all the women that had jeans on, because you know they wanted to just dress freely, they would run into the bathroom, turn their pants around. Uh, you know, some of them would wear like skirts under 
they would have like a change of clothes in case they had to do this. But not only would you be arrested for the night, but your name would be printed in the in the morning paper. So now everyone knows that you were there at this one bar that was kind of the best kept secret in in town, you know, or the place that everyone just kind of walked by briskly because <laughs> they didn't want anything to do with it. And st that happened in gay bars, lesbian bars, because at the time the two were pretty separate. Mm -hmm. uh, Stonewall, though, was interesting because it, it was kind of more inclusive. And yeah, police could just go in there and just for being in there, you could get thrown on the back of a paddy wagon and they just had enough. There's a really fantastic book on uh, the subject of police raids on queer bars, and it's Tab Hunter Confidential, the memoir oh, yeah. of the autobiography of Tab Hunter, the actor in the 50s and 60s. He describes in detail this entire scene. Yeah. So you should really check that out. And there's also a documentary on the same subject. With him. Yeah. It, it, yeah. If you check out the documentary I mentioned uh, before Stonewall, they really get into this. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it, it was so dangerous to be yourself back then. It, it really, really was. And that lends proof to the fact that it's not a fucking choice, you know, which is going to be Anita Bryant's big argument about about gays um also it's worth noting that in los angeles just up the street from where we're recording this the black cat bar was actually the first bar to have kind of civil unrest uh, in 1967 they had the black cat riots and it was essentially like the west coast stonewall but stonewall really was the one that got the attention of the world now one year after stonewall the very first gay pride parade was held in major cities across the country as the world of LGBT folk became visible to mainstream America, so did the inherent bigotry of the conservative Christian right, who viewed the gay lifestyle as nothing more than a choice. And, in their opinion, was a choice that was rife with deviancy and sin. They saw being gay as indulging in a fetish or sexual preference rather than orientation. This belief system, coupled with the now out and proud LGBT community's newfound courage and motivation, was a recipe for a serious social clash, and that clash is the basis of the dump today. At this point, gays, lesbians, and trans people all had their own agenda, and it was rare for one group to show unwavering support for the other. Gay men were flaunting their sexuality, lesbians were struggling to find a woman's place in what was then considered to be a male-dominated space, and trans folk, to a large degree, were just desperately trying to be taken seriously by either of the two. Transgender wasn't even a, a phrase back then. It wasn't even a word or a term used. You would hear transvestite, which essentially just meant a man that likes to wear women's clothes, not someone you know, born with the biological male parts that is inherently a female on the inside. That's something that really wasn't understood until... I mean, really the 90s, uh, where it was accepted widely within the community itself. Um, of course, there's examples that go way back. Like, for instance, in Berlin, they had this huge thing where people were given um, licenses to be allowed to cross-dress. It was almost like a prescription hmm. to be allowed to live yourself. And that was seen as really progressive, where it's like, no, we're going to allow this person that we see as a man to live their life as a woman because that's helping them medically, you know, with their mental health. But what happened was when Nazis took power, they took all those, yeah. all the registration forms and they had their first list of gays that were going to be thrown in the camps. So it, it's a long history of fucked up shit that we're talking about here. Now, stories of gay perversion flooded news outlets while lesbians threatened the long-standing patriarchal society they existed in, and trans people were just trying to find acceptance in the community they felt equally a part of. But the important thing to remember is that this was truly an out-of-the-closet and into-the-streets movement, making it an international issue that had to be taken seriously. 
the days of limp-wristed sissies were gone. And that really, uh, it's interesting if you watch um, Before Stonewall, you have a lot of World War II veterans that were Marines. You know, these are combat-hardened dudes. And they said that, you know, they were convinced that they were a sissy or a fairy their whole life. Or they would hear other gays being made fun of and they knew they had to keep that a secret. But once they went through combat and they, you know, had the unity of just needing to save each other and watch each other's backs no matter who you were, they were like, fuck this. We're not sissies. I just fucking survived a goddamn war and killed Nazis. Like when we get back to the States, I'm living my fucking life. And that's why you see port cities like, you know, New York and San Francisco become hubs of gay activity because that's where a lot of them were deciding to not go back home because there wasn't a place for them. But Hey, we found each other in the army. Let's all just stay here in San Francisco or what have you. Um, and again, you know, these guys, they're burning down police cars now and they're smashing mm-hmm. windows and they're fighting and they're, they're protesting. They're not just taking this shit sitting down or bending over. <laughs> and, um, you know, we'll, we'll see this again and again, especially during the eighties, during the AIDS crisis with groups like act up. Um, and also, it's also very much worth noting that being a homosexual was considered a mental illness across the board until 1973. So overnight, millions of people were cured instantly just by waking up. You know, they were sick. They wake up. They're no longer sick. Um, and gay sexual activity was criminalized in all states as recently as 1962. Some states still have anti-sodomy laws on the books. Yeah, 1973. So... Once that happened, it was really only the religious folk who had the problems with the gays, not the science. And, right. you know, religion and science don't really go together. Right, right, right. Yeah, it, it, exactly. <laughs> now, the gay liberation movement had bigger goals than just being able to hold hands in public or having the ability to wear whatever they wanted. The movement had its eyes set on monumental civil rights. One of the main rights they fought for was job protection. While many states had laws in place to protect job security for minorities and women, there were no such laws for the LGBT community. This was because up until the 1970s, the majority of the American public and the government did not recognize them as a group worth protecting or even needing protection. This could not have been further from the truth as gays and lesbians were routinely fired from their jobs upon the discovery of their lifestyle. By the late 70s, it seemed as though the LGBT community was winning their uphill battle. A shining example of this was the election of San Francisco City Supervisor Harvey Milk in 1977. Milk became the first openly gay man to serve in public office in California. One of the anchor points of Milk's campaign was retaliation against, you guessed it, Anita Bryant. Now... There is something that's happening towards the end of the 70s, especially 1977. There's a great documentary about this, if you're interested, uh, called Gay Sex in the 70s. And 77 was just this, like, fucking, like, flashpoint of sexual activity. Everyone's going crazy. Like, guys were cruising each other in STD clinics because it was (laughs) was just a shot. You know, there wasn't anything like we'll see in just a couple years after this that would become detrimental. And so in a lot of ways, the movement had kind of slowed down. It seemed that people were becoming complacent with with the way things were going until what we're talking about now. On January 18th, 1977, in Dade County, Florida, despite the cries of hundreds of angry citizens present for the vote, an ordinance was passed that would protect gays and lesbians from several injustices, particularly workplace discrimination. That is to say, they could no longer be fired for being themselves. 
This was a huge deal. It was televised. There was, you know, it was standing room only. And then there was hundreds of people outside the, the courthouse or, or the city hall. And it also protected them. This ordinance protected them from be, being kicked out of housing, which was a thing. Um, and interestingly enough, one of the members of the committee that voted in support of this ordinance protecting homosexuals was the wife of Anita Bryant's booking agent. And Anita Bryant had actually donated money to help this woman get elected. Um, not knowing later that this would happen and was super embarrassed by it, which a lot of historians believe motivated Anita Bryant to take such a hard stance against this and, you know, dedicate herself to this anti-gay cause. Opposers to the ordinance cited the employment of gays as school teachers as the main reason such a law was dangerous, claiming that gays and lesbians were attempting to infiltrate schools in order to recruit more gays because they themselves could not have children of their own, which is absolutely insane. Upon hearing news of this ordinance, Anita Bryant, after a rock-hard prayer session, decided it was God's will that she take up the fight against this legislation and really gay folks as a whole. And this wasn't her first rodeo as a party pooper. She also protested against the doors in 1969 in what became known as the Rally for Decency. Uh, the guy was just pulling his wiener out. I think she's got a problem with wieners. Yeah, she's got a problem with a lot of things. And clearly, classic rock is one of them. Because (laughs) now the doors are so utterly benign and it's just wallpaper to people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you get a door shirt at Walmart. Yeah, you know, it's it's crazy. Actually, the Kardashians, uh, or the Jenners, I should say, Kendall and Kylie, I believe it was, they came out with an apparel line where they just, like, thought it would be fine to make, like, the doors shirts and like rolling stones <laughs> stuff. And like, they got sued. Like, no, you, like you can't just because it had become so meaningless to have the doors on your shirt that they just thought it was like public domain. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that people, the things people used to protest. Now the ordinance protecting gay and lesbian jobs was the result of decades of oppression at the hands of the Florida legislation investigation committee, which since 1956 had been attempting to strike down civil rights for just about everyone except white Christian folks. This started with their opposition of of desegregated schools, which was swiftly struck down in order to save face and prove that their mission was righteous. They set their sights on a different group, a group that had little to no legal protection against discrimination, homosexuals. Because the committee was well-funded by taxpayers, schools across the state launched investigations against their staff in an attempt to out gays and lesbians and fire them. This also applied to students who would be expelled if outed. It was this very personal attack that became the exact thing that Floridian gay activists would successfully fight against in the 1970s. The student thing... I mean, and the teacher thing, that is so what is happening right now with the Florida don't say gay bill. It's just don't mention it, you know, like and and if we know that you are like you're a danger to to the children. And that's been the biggest focal point for anti-gay people forever is this idea of pedophilia. It's like, no, dude, like there is a gay guy's attracted to men (laughs) like pedophiles are attracted to children. It's not the same. Personally, I think children are disgusting. I would never, <laughs> ever, I would never fucking kid. They're gross. No, yeah. Never do that. Yeah, it's gross. Yeah, but that, but that's like just that's the button. You know, once they press that button in the mind of some of these, you know, super conservative like people that are that have to actively ignore social changes in order to maintain this belief system. By the way, like you have to put on blinders to everything around you. It's like. Um, racists that think that like say you're you're a white supremacist and you think that black people are inherently less intelligent you have to put on blinders to just exist with that mentality like we had a black president like how how do you explain that you know and to be this homophobic and like you really have to put on blinders to how many 
not pedophiles there are like within the gay world. I mean, most like teacher student inappropriate relations are between male and female. A hundred percent. Now, Anita's next order of business was to gather a group of like-minded fellow citizens for a highly publicized press conference denouncing the ordinance where she, along with local pastors and concerned parents, spewed shiny repackaged hate speech, all of which they claimed was out of love for the lost souls that are gays and lesbians. What began as a localized effort soon grew into a nationwide campaign, which Anita dubbed Save Our Children. And again, she relied super heavily on the sexual aspect of the gay lifestyle because it would just gross out these these straight people. Like, like it's just like, well, they do this. It has nothing to do with any harm being done or the breaking down of the American family unit. It's just like about it being distasteful to people that aren't gay like that. So she would show porn and stuff. Actually. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Here we go. This story. Yeah. yeah. yeah her son uh, was interviewed and he said that there was actually a time where he came downstairs when she had all of these people over all, the, you know, and it wasn't just pastors either. She had rabbis over people of other religious religions. Um, she really, it was all about being anti-gay, not about being pro-Christian <laughs> like that. That's so she was trying to find soldiers wherever she could. And she would have these people over and then set up a projection screen and show porn <laughs> essentially and be like, this is what they're doing. They want to do this to your kids. It's like, it, it's not like she's showing child porn, I think. Um, but it reminds me of that African, pastor that don't eat or uh, they yeah. eat the poo poo. Oh yes, the poo poo guy. Yeah, yeah. Like, I can't get enough of the poo poo guy. He, no one can. He's yeah. great. Like if you support him or you hate him, yes. you can't get enough of watching that video. <laughs> it brings people together. Uh, here, it, but essentially, what that guy did was he would show like scat porn, like shit porn videos, and be like, "This is what they do." But also, again, it's like there's this invasion of privacy aspect where it's like even if someone's eating shit, like. If they're doing it in their bedroom and everyone's down to eat the shit, who cares? Yes. Also, I, you know, I can find porn on the internet. I could not tell you where to find a scat porn. I have no clue how to search oh, I get, yeah. <laughs> like, how the fuck does this guy, this pastor, where is he looking? Right. You yeah. Know? Yeah. He had to do some deep diving. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Or he's just like, oh, I got to bookmark this. Like, what does his fucking bookmarks look like on his computer? <laughs> but yeah, apparently Anita Bryant's son would like creep down the stairs and through like the railings would watch like this porn over the heads of like all these crazy conservatives in, in their neighborhood. Oh, I want to know what the video setup was. Was it on film? Was it on video? It, you know, probably just watching like Boys of Summer or something like some like classic. Yeah, who, who fucking knows? Now, while her Dade County gatherings were met with opposition from gay activists, her message gained momentum, a momentum that culminated in the repeal of the ordinance by a two-to-one margin. This repeal symbolized the very real threat to the gay civil rights movement, which only eight years before began to take shape. News of the repeal reverberated throughout the country. Now politicians and conservative activists felt empowered to speak their minds against a group who, in actuality, they feared. What they did not expect, however, was the bond between gay men and lesbian women that would be formed through this adversity. Because now it was the whole movement's problem. It wasn't, oh, we don't want men wearing dresses. We don't want women dressing up as men. We don't want, you know, gay men to have bathhouses where they can have sex. We don't want, you know, lesbians pushing this feminist agenda. It was all of you are included in this. And that's what brought them together and, you know, created a, a very big force of energy. Now, the country... It was changing, and even though the odds were stacked against LGBT folks, speaking against them now posed a threat to politicians and their careers. Anita Bryant, she was right in the middle of that. 
Winning the battle on her home turf inspired Anita Bryant to take her message on the road, speaking to politicians, journalists, and DJs about her mission, not unlike her early days as a young singer. Anita quickly became a dual-sided symbol for both Christian values as well as rampant American homophobia. While Anita's face was plastered across pro-gay propaganda and protest signs, oftentimes with the word bigot across her forehead, she was also named Good Housekeeping's Most Admired Woman in America three years in a row. <laughs> like, so, like, it, it's interesting to see, like, the pro... Again, this is why it's worth, like, talking about the villains in civil rights history just as it is to talk about the heroes. Because you have, you know thousands of protest signs and t-shirts and pins with Anita Bryant's face on it that said like, Oh, suck an orange, Anita Bryant or blah, blah, blah. But then you also had people like holding up signs that literally said the exact opposite. So there are two sides to every story, but it all plays into the same dump. Uh, 1977 though. What a year. This is all happening in that one year. Uh, that is the year that she released one of the books I used for this, uh, titled The Anita Bryant Story, The Survival of Our Nation's Families and the Threat of Militant Homosexuality. Barf. Yeah, barf. And uh, I actually happen to have my copy of The Anita Bryant Story, The Survival of Our Nation's Families and the Threat of Militant Homosexuality right here in my hand. And I just want to give you a quick, uh, a quick taste of what's in here. If people are discriminated against now under the civil rights law, they can take it to court. Homosexuals are not a race. It is not a birthright to be a homosexual. A lot of them are under the misconception they've been a homosexual all their lives. A homosexual is not born. They are made. If they, homosexuals, are a legitimate minority group, then so are nail biters, fat people, short people, whatever. The laws of the land have always been to protect the normal, not the abnormal. If you're going to have a preferential legislative peace for everyone in the whole world, it becomes ridiculous. So there's the crux of their bullshit argument. It's not preferential. It's just equal. It's just the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same. Uh, she said a ton of crazy shit. She also said, what's next? Rights for murderers? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And she also said rights for people who sleep with St. Bernard's, which uh, leads me to believe that she thinks St. Bernard's are the sexiest dog. Right. Well, it's always about projections. So we must equate that statement with like her lusting after. Yeah, do the... I deserve rights? Because I want to fuck a St. Bernard. <laughs> Is that what she said? <laughs> yeah. That's why she really loves Lassie. Yeah. <laughs> or the film's Beethoven. It's like porn for her. Um <laughs> Yeah. Also, I like the the whole concept of gay being a choice. First of all, if it was a choice, there'd be a lot more. Okay, because it seems like a lot of fun. Like, yeah. Yeah, who doesn't want a fucking parade? I also don't remember making a choice myself. So. Do you remember when when you realized? Yeah, I was about fifteen, and it kind of just clicked. I, I it wasn't about I, you know, like uh, I didn't do anything but understand it. I didn't choose it. Right, right. Yeah, it, it's just how it is. It's not like um, fucking St. Bernard's. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is a fucking choice. That is a choice. You choose to have sex with that dog, Anita. Uh, Jesus Christ. Oh, and uh, in one press conference, she referred to gays as human garbage uh, that needs to be taken out. With a bullshit army of supporters behind her, Anita Bryant ramped up her anti-gay campaign. She teamed up with Jerry Falwell, who helped her rally the troops, so to speak, and her hateful rhetoric evolved from traditional and predictable to just downright ludicrous, like the St. Bernard thing. As Anita Bryant's influence spread, it had two very opposite effects. On one hand, politicians and citizens rallied together to pass more anti-gay legislation, such as the 1977 prohibition of gay adoption in Florida. But on the other hand, gays and lesbians banded together and formed the Coalition of Human Rights and the Miami Victory Campaign. 
These pro-gay activist groups ignited a nationwide boycott of Anita Bryant herself, of course, but also her employer, the Florida Citrus Commission, which eventually spilled over into an all-out boycott against orange juice. And as Anita was known across the country as the orange juice lady, that hit the industry hard. Um, gay bars also did a boycott on Coors because Coors had some, like, one of their CEOs or something had, or, or they backed an anti-gay legislation or bill. Um, we, we saw that happen with like Chick-fil-A and Target, you know, it's the same thing. So by the thousands, they dumped bottles of Coors out into the streets. And with the orange juice thing, bars started serving uh, the Anita Bryant cocktail, which was apple juice and vodka. And they would have a sign up that said like no screwdrivers with a picture of Anita's face with an X through it. Um, leave it up to gays, just great marketing. Now, soon, North American gay bars displayed signs regarding the boycott, going so far as to ban, yes, the sale of screwdrivers in favor of, like I said, the Anita Brandt cocktail. The sales of the Anita Brandt cocktail, in addition to the anti-Anita merch, such as pins and shirts, funded the fight against the Save Our Children campaign, which had to change its name to Protect America's Children after legal action by the Save the Children Foundation in an attempt to separate themselves from Brandt and her movement. Uh... Yeah, just like that's just grifting stuff. Just take what what works. Like I'm sure she saw or was aware of Save the Children Foundation and either just didn't care, didn't think that her name was too similar or was like, well, I'm so right. They'll have to back me anyways. Mm -hmm. But no, everyone's separating themselves from her. So it went from uh, save our children to protect America's children. And I love how it's just in America. She doesn't care about, uh, <laughs> you know, gay teachers in England or anything like that. Couldn't give a fuck about Canada. Yeah. No, fuck them. Yeah, exactly. This is about America's children. America's children first. Now, towards the end of 1977, it became clear that Anita was fighting a losing battle. Public disapproval of her message was made clear during a televised press conference on October 14, 1977, where a young activist named Tom Higgins smashed a pie in her face as she spoke. After the pie exploded all over Brian's face, an audible gasp swept the room, followed by Anita quipping, at least it's a fruit pie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it like, doesn't even work. After the joke, she began praying for Higgins' soul, all whilst covered in cream pie. Uh, this clip, I first saw it over 20 years ago in the early days of the internet, um, either on some gay rights website or some variation on Rotten.com, you know, where right. weird videos lived back then. As, yes. As any listener of Culture Dumps knows, was that, like, <laughs> two or three months ago, it was an epic, epic episode. I, I feel like Anita's pie video is more like E-bombs world territory. Mm -hmm. You know, now if she got hit with a pie and then like had her fucking brains blown out, that'd be like rotten.com. <laughs> you know, or if like the pie was made of shit, like that, yeah, that's some uh, yeah. rotten.com territory. I absolutely love this clip, not only for its iconic nature, but also the the quipping. It sounds like the Lily Tomlin character, Ernestine. Like, <laughs> well, at least it's a fruit pie. At least it's a fruit pie. Yeah, and which it wasn't, by the way. It was just like, that's just straight up cream pie. That's like a pie that a clown would have. Uh, and I don't know where the guy got it or how he got it in. That is the big mystery. Um, almost as big of a mystery as uh, her husband, because her husband said that he ran out and uh, also like he threw a pie back. Like there's just pies all over the place at this at this press junket. <laughs> well, I imagine it's in a hotel. A hotel will have a kitchen that's just making pastries, and suddenly you just grab a pie off the line. Like I wonder if he had like run up to the counter. He's like, "Quick, I need a pie!" And just like threw a twenty. <laughs> Keep the change. Yeah, and like ran out there. Um, I'm gonna play the quick soundbite of the the pie moment though, so you can hear just the desperation and you know. 
while she is a absolute homophobic bigot, you know, and her and she was there spouting hate speech. I'm a human being and just the devastation in her voice and just the absolute defeat. There is kind of like a, Oh fuck. Like that. Like, like, I don't know. Like something about me, like, like if she only knew better, you know, I would feel bad for her because she really does seem devastated, but let's listen to Anita Bryant getting cream pied. And into a place called Norfolk, Virginia, and were met with protest and, uh, um, all kinds of problems. And, uh, uh every, oh, oh, oh. Security agent, security agent. No, no, let, let him stay. No. Let him stay. Well, at let's least stay. it's a fruit pie. Huh. Let's, let's pray for him right now. Anita, right now. let's pray. Anita, why don't you pray? That's all right. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity of coming to Des Moines. And Father, I want to ask that you forgive him. That we love him. And that we love him. And that we're praying for him to be delivered from his deviant lifestyle, Father. And I just... <laughs> Something you really need to do is you need to seek out this clip, whether on YouTube or whatever. I'm sure you'll have a link to it on the Patreon, Ryan. Oh, sure. Um, you need to watch the moment after the pie guy leaves the room and she continues on with her press conference. She is weeping, just broken down, <laughs> a shell of a person. And she's doing some Bible verse thing and her face is still littered with pie she looks like um it's like mrs doubtfire she's like hello yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dude, that, i wish that the guy that smashed her in the face with the pie said that for like hello and just like fucking <laughs> doubtfired her by 1978 the protect america's children campaign started to lose steam as much more prominent celebrities than anita bryant voiced their opposition to bryant's opinions she was regular joke bait on the johnny carson show and the target of celebrity activists such as jane fonda with mainstream pushback in full effect, Bryant's events were routinely picketed by gay activist groups, which in turn discouraged venue owners from allowing her to appear. Full on canceled. This is what happens when you're canceled. We're seeing this now. And of course, that word, you know, we didn't use the phrase back then, but that, this is what's happening. She was one of the few people actually canceled, though, because there's so many canceled people coming back. Or well, because they have the internet. Yes, they have the internet, and also they exist in a sphere, which is not the mainstream, but it's still there. Right, exactly. It's like what we were talking about earlier, where it's like you have to find your grift audience because mainstream is going to reject you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and she was the target of death threats, bomb threats. Uh, her children were threatened with kidnapping. People sent her poop in the mail. Uh, <laughs> hilarious. And according to her website, uh, she was even sent voodoo dolls. Which are the most – it's the most camp – poison pen letter you can send someone <laughs> yeah, a voodoo know. doll so guess who was sending them my tribe yeah, right? I, I would love to see like an anita bryant voodoo doll you know but also i love that that's where it's like, i could take poop in the mail but voodoo you're gonna bring witchcraft into this yeah now one of the last hurrahs for bryant was the briggs initiative introduced in california in 1978 under the Briggs Initiative, employees of public schools caught making pro-gay statements could be fired. The initiative came under fire by politicians such as President Jimmy Carter, California Governor Jerry Brown, former President Gerald Ford, and future President Ronald Reagan. And it was defeated by a landslide in the polls. Uh, it is interesting that this was something that Reagan defended um, of course, you know, it's the empty promise of a politician. You know, it's like, hey, I need to back this because I'm the California governor. I can get them on my side. Then when he's president and the gays really needed his help, he didn't even mention AIDS, I think, until five or six years into the crisis. Oh, yeah. Just like uh, Kristen Cinema 
is like just changing where she's going very obviously out in the open if anyone listening to this we're recording this in uh december 2022 yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah reagan just that's where the money was was in the quote moral majority that was that that was the thing in the right 80s. right well and, and we also talked about though how he was from showbiz and you know like if you work in show business you're around gay people like it's it's just a fucking fact and so i'm sure like you know his his glam team uh, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term like we're probably the only gay people he knew and he's like oh well i like rodney like i can uh, i don't want to fuck him over but then once you become president you don't have to do anything for anyone life after hate or i should say life after public hate because uh, she harbors those feelings to this day by the end of the 1970s anita bryant had lost all of her corporate sponsorships and her singing career had hit a standstill she was persona non grata and she was feeling it She attempted to start her own variety show, which would have ideally been sponsored by the Singer Sewing Machine Company. She went into the idea thinking, oh, I'll have like a televised variety show like uh, like like the the Brady Bunch did or any singers did at this time. Uh, And it'll be brought to you by the Singer Sewing Machine Company because I'm good housekeeping's three time award winning woman of the year. They absolutely refused, uh, citing specifically her politics as the reason. And the sponsor thing really fucked her because now she's not selling records, not only because people aren't listening to that kind of music, but because they don't want her. Her books are extremely unpopular because they suck and they're fucking boring. (laughs) Yeah, no one wants to eat Anita Bryant food. And now she can't be a spokesperson because they'll just be boycotted. In 1980, Anita would be given a taste of her own medicine after her divorce from Bob Green. Her reasons for the divorce included emotional abuse, which led to suicidal thoughts. Her divorce, along with the admission of having suicidal thoughts, led many of her staunch Christian supporters to turn on her. Bob Green did not help matters by publicly rejecting the divorce due to his fundamentalist values that did not allow for the sanctity of marriage to be tarnished by divorce. So all the people that were backing her now pull away because she a got divorced. Good Christian women don't get divorced. And she contemplated suicide. That's a huge, huge no, no. <laughs> I mean, just in general, but also according to the Bible. So now her, her built in fan base of homophobes are despite like her being the icon of their cause are pulling away because of the other things that she's doing in her life, which aren't Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, the divorce, it, it really did stem from the stress that came from her being such a controversial figure. Um, and that struggle is actually detailed in another one of her books at any cost. Right. Cause she's a grifter and it's all about the book deal. Really? Like for example, yeah. for example, Mike Pence is not going to be president of the United States in 2024, but he'll participate in the farce of the primary because that will net him a book deal right at any cost at any fucking cost. <laughs> yeah. now the people who so fiercely backed anita wanted nothing to do with her with no prospects on the horizon anita moved back to oklahoma with her children and attempted to regroup she eventually moved to alabama and then to georgia anita has described the next 10 years as the darkest time in her life she attempted to break into the world of feminism after her divorce backlash but to no avail big shocker she also began backpedaling her beliefs on gays and lesbians somewhat but not even close to the point of redemption in 1980 ladies home journal article she was quoted saying i'm more inclined to say live and let live just don't try to flaunt it or legalize it (laughs) thanks lady yeah 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 i'm cool with you being you as long as no one ever knows and you're absolutely miserable and if someone does know we can put you away yes and i have to say so yeah exactly it's very it reminds me of the military you know don't ask don't tell thing where it's like no you're allowed to be this just as long as we don't know it and you don't act like it it's it's completely just like it's 
the damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing. Now, throughout the 1980s, Anita performed sparsely at whatever venues would have her. Needless to say, this was not a lucrative time in the life of Anita Bryant. She is full-on canceled, although she did appear in Roger and Me, the Michael Moore film, uh, just probably as one of his pawns to, you know, <laughs> push his point by yeah. showing someone completely to the right, you know. Yeah, and anyone, like anyone seeking fame, clearly like her, she'll do anything. Even if it makes her look bad, she'll still do it. Yeah, she's there. Right, exactly. Things started to look up for the disgraced orange juice peddling singer in 1990 when she married a former astronaut test crewman named Charlie Dry. The two had been childhood sweethearts who reunited in their middle age. Mr. and Mrs. Dry moved to Arkansas, where they attempted to reignite Anita's career in 1991 by creating a new stage show they called The Anita Bryant Show. Having tried the show in places like Branson, Missouri, the couple where literally careers go to die, uh, the couple landed in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, where they opened Anita Bryant's Music Mansion. Ugh. Yeah. The Music Mansion was a theater that would feature a Bryant performing hits from her catalog. While the venture wasn't successful, it did manage to survive until 2002 when, after missing several weeks of payroll, closed for good and forced Anita to file for bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. The Anita Bryant Music Mansion sounds like a after dark, like real sex kind of show, like almost <laughs> like the Uncle Luke like two live crew show where he would have rappers on while like chicks had sex next to them. Like he, he interviewed Jay-Z parks talked about this on the two live crew episode, but it's like Jay-Z early in his career is sitting on a couch while there's two naked women, like going down on each other next to him. And he's just like, yeah. So the album, uh, it's, uh, it's coming out in the like, damn, like he, I can't, like, I wish that was like Anita Bryant, like welcome to the music mansion playboys. Like, and it's just her like fucking hosting some sick ass fucking pool party with a pimp chalice. Um, but this wasn't the first time that she filed for bankruptcy. In 1997, after the failure of the Anita Bryant show, she filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy after racking up over $172,000 in unpaid federal taxes uh -huh. because tax stuff isn't sin. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, You're allowed to break tax rules. Clearly uh, another parallel to today. The arc of the story of Kanye West is similar to oh, Anita Bryant. yeah. And... Guess who also has filing for bankruptcy with his like clothing company now, and and there's a story in the news that he's like back tax owed and right all that. So canceled, big red stamp, don't yeah. yeah, and the and all the grift that goes along with it. And clearly, if you're that grifty in the first place to do the things that he does or she does, they're gonna screw over the tax man. As well. well, and I mean that's the thing with like with religious grifters in in in. Specifically, I should say, like, for instance, like the Tammy Faye Baker kind of whole thing. And that's the thing. Anita Bryant could have been a Tammy Faye. She, she really could have. Uh, but she went the other way, partner, as the judge in the Ted Bundy trial <laughs> said to him. <laughs> Did you know that when Ted Bundy was at, at trial, the judge said, uh, you're a bright young man. I would have loved to see you practice law. But you went the other way, partner. <laughs> the other way being murdering and raping, you know, dozens of women. Um, but like... It, the grifting aspect of religion is so obvious and clear. All of the biggest religious figures get in trouble for tax stuff, which should prove to everyone involved that, hey, it's a fucking scam. Or, or hey, it's very easy to scam us because we put our faith in this thing that can't be proven scientifically. So we just throw caution to the wind and they always get busted for tax shit. That's why Righteous Gemstones is so fun. It's perfect. Yeah, it's 
fucking perfect. Righteous Gemstones is incredible. That's definitely more on the Tammy Faye side yeah. uh, of things. Yeah. And Tammy Faye is definitely a dump, too, by the way. If you don't know who we're talking about, uh, you should. Regardless of the public downfall due to the controversy surrounding her, Anita Bryant still writes books and releases music. In fact, in 2005, she was honored by her hometown of Barnsall, Oklahoma, as an outstanding member of the community and even had a street named after her. There is an Anita Bryant Boulevard in Barnsall, Oklahoma, and no one cares. And that's 2005. <laughs> Anita and her husband Charlie moved back to Oklahoma where Charlie is considered a hero of aviation and is a member of Oklahoma's Governor's Aerospace Committee as well as the University of Oklahoma's Aviation Advisory Board. He also founded a space camp for kids. Anita, on the other hand, founded Anita Bryant Ministries, which she still leads today. Anita's legacy is often challenged by members of her own family. Take, for instance, her granddaughter, Sarah Green, who in 2021 came out publicly as gay and announced her engagement to a woman. Other relatives have explained that Anita exists in a world that she considers to be socially unrecognizable, a world that she knows has no room for a voice like hers, so she has chosen to remain silent. Good. Um, also, the ordinance in Dade County... Uh, that protected gays that got, started this whole thing that Anita got repealed was reinstated in 1998. It took that long to, to get it back. Cause that's the, uh, it's fucking Florida, man. Is Florida a dump? Yes. <laughs> like, yes. Is Florida Absolutely. a dump? Oh, it's Florida is. man shit. Uh, no offense to anyone in Florida. I love y'all. Now, what does it all mean? Well, I guess it means that hate is bullshit. It might take forever, but I deeply believe that truth and justice will always prevail. While the world is far from perfect and the looming threat of intolerance, racism, homophobia, transphobia, and all other types of discrimination and prejudice is never far behind, it can be defeated. There is real harm that can be done by those given a public platform, and just as it is the constitutional right for people like Anita Bryant to voice their opinion, it is also the right of those who oppose those opinions to voice theirs. And while I will admit that, in my opinion, some of this canceling stuff or the so-called cancel culture, in some cases, has definitely gotten out of hand, some people 100% should be canceled, and Anita Bryant is one of them. Now, while the dump here takes place in the 1970s. There are obviously clear glimmers of Anita Bryant's Save Our Children campaign in present-day America, most notably the Florida's introduction of the Don't Say Gay bill um, and, of course, the rampant homophobia that we're seeing in hate crimes such as the Club Q shooting, Pulse nightclub. Um, but, like I said, the good stuff will always prevail. For instance, the president signing in the Marriage Protection Act you know, across the entire country. So... We're, we're not quite there yet, but it, it is it is getting better, I'd like to think. By 5%. By 5%. Yeah. 5% better. That's fine. <laughs> that, yeah. Oh, also worth noting, they're turning Anita Bryant, and she's getting the biopic treatment, and Uma Thurman is slated to play her. So check that out. I believe that's going to be an HBO film. Now, that we're done with all that fucking depressing shit, <laughs> uh, January 20th in Los Angeles at Whammy Analog Media. Uh, we talked about it on the last episode. I'm going to talk about it until it happens. Uh, come to the show. Tickets are going to be available at whammyanalog.com. Um, just just search Whammy. You should follow them on Instagram, too. Um, if you're not in L.A., they're definitely worth checking out because what Whammy Analog Media is is a VHS store. It is, imagine the coolest record store in your neighborhood, but it only sold VHS tapes and did screenings and comedy shows and things like that. Um, we're going to be joined by actually every act on the bill. It's kind of cool. They were all guests on Culture Dump. So Brett here, 
was today's guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Conway, one of the founders of the Hard Times, is on the show. He was on our Osiris D3 episode, and he fucking founded the Hard Times. Like that's worth coming to see. Um, also, Adam Papigan, who's been on several episodes, he'll be doing um, a showing of all of his appearances on court TV shows. Uh, Brett, do you know what you're showing? Yeah, so I'm going to be. I, I already have a work in progress mix of local television restaurant commercials. They're just they have a certain frisson, yeah. and uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just really like them, and they always have a jingle that's fun. So uh, I'm going to be showing a work in progress mix of of that, and uh, this will actually be the first live set type of thing that I have done for Museum of Home Video that people can attend. Awesome. So very excited about that. Thank you for putting together the show. Uh, I love Whammy. I think within weeks of their opening, they became a legit cultural center for the Absolutely. neighborhood. Oh, dude, it's like they're like the CBGBs of like fucking pop culture com- comedians. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoy everything they do. And the people that run it are fantastic people. And you should support them. If you don't have a VCR, okay, just go see a show. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. The 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 it just happened. It's a show at a VHS store. It's not uh, you know, <laughs> you know, you don't need to have a VCR to enjoy it. Um, and we will be filming our performance as well. Um, so yeah, check that out. January twentieth in LA. Um, make sure you guys are stri- subscribed to our Patreon, patreoncom slash dumps where we have bonus episodes, research materials, all, all you know, side series like docu dumps, um, squirts, all kinds of different stuff. Yeah, I love the Patreon. I've been a Patreon subscribers, subscriber, excuse me, since the beginning, and I've uh, loved Podcast Ninety Nine since almost the beginning of that. So I think that this Patreon is truly worth it because it's supporting something that's fun and researchy, and anyone who is into this shit, edutainment, edutainment, anyone who's into this shit knows. Yeah, and you know, uh, also worth mentioning that the Patreon is for both Podcast Ninety Nine and Culture Dump, so you get both shows uh, bonus yeah. content and if you guys don't listen to podcast 99 uh i don't want to toot my own horn but the episode that we just released our latest survivor story where we interview someone that went to woodstock 99 is the best one uh so i listened to that and it's a whole lot of pock the car and harvard yeah tats <laughs> so if you're into that you're really gonna get a He's, kick out of the episode. he fucking killed it he was like oh my god it's so funny he was arrested at woodstock 99 so check that out on podcast 99 well folks i'm ryan lichten i've been joined by brett berg make sure you follow us on instagram at culture dumps send us suggestions questions comments all that good stuff at culture dumps at gmail.com keep on dumping